Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In 1989, five black and a Latino teenagers from Harlem were arrested and later convicted of brutally beating and raping a white woman in New York City's Central Park. New York Mayor Ed Koch called it the crime of the century, and it remains one of the biggest media stories of our time. The five each spent between 6 and 13 years in prison before a shocking confession from a serial rapist and DNA evidence proved their innocence. Set against the backdrop of a decaying city beset by violence and racial tension, the Central Park Five tells the story of how five lives were upended by a rush to judgment by police, a sensationalist media, and a devastating miscarriage of justice. We're joined today on Film School by one of the co-directors, writers, and producers of the Central Park Five, David McMahon. David has worked with... um, Ken Burns, who's also a, a co-producer, uh, director, and writer, as well as Sarah Burns, uh, on a number of uh, Burns projects, including uh, The War, National Parks, America's Best Idea, and uh, was the writer-producer on the 10th inning, two-part follow-up to uh, the 19, uh, to Ken Burns' 1994 series, Baseball. Long way to s- go, but David McMahon, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you're so welcome, and I'm just so thrilled to have you on to talk about this just wonderful documentary, uh, a, 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 a story uh, that will I- anger and um, the viewers who are watching it and, and hopefully cause some uh, conversations uh, about what happened and why. Um, but tell me a little bit about uh, the genesis of the Central Park Five in terms of as a film project. And if you want to get in, well, in, in the process, I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about the actual events. Yes. Um, my co-director, Sarah Burns, uh, began uh, investigating the story a decade ago as an undergrad. She wrote a thesis paper about the media representation of the five in, 80, in 1989, immediately after the crime happened. And uh, from there, she went on to write a book about it, and the book serves as the foundation for our work on the documentary. And we began about three years ago uh, with production on it. But really, as she was writing the book, uh, Sarah, Ken, and myself, we all were looking at the material and saying, you know, this would w- could make for a really interesting documentary. You know, the book really drills down deep into the material. The documentary affords us an opportunity to put the five subjects of the book and, the, and uh, of the story um, on camera and to let them tell the story in their own words and we thought it was a great opportunity to give them that chance yeah and I'm just before we get too far into the interview I want to mention their names let's give them a name here there's Antron McRae Kevin Richardson Raymond Santana Corey Wise and Youssef Salam are the five uh, that we know as the Central Park Five teenagers who were in Central Park on April 19, 2000, 1989 um, and, and to set up a little you'll give me a bit, little bit better context and I'll be able to do that but tell us a little bit about what was going on in Central Park that night and um, what subsequently um, transpired well the five um, didn't know each other really um, mm-hmm. they, they were from the same neighborhood and, and, and two of them were actually friendly but on the whole they didn't know each other and uh, the next day was a, a day off from school, 
and um, they were each part of different groups. Uh, so they had gathered on the on the edge of the park and became this kind of loose knit group of of teenage boys, and, and they went into the park. Some of the boys in that group engaged in some assaults on bicyclists and joggers, which was why they were all brought into the police station. Um, None were involved in the rape, but when the police learned of the rape, they began questioning the boys, and the boys numbered at least 25. Not all of them were brought in at that point, but it seemed obvious to the police that they should be questioning some teenagers who had been accused of of these assaults um, about the rape. Uh, I think that ultimately the five become the Central Park Five out of out of this group because they were the most vulnerable to the techniques of seasoned police detectives to falsely confessing to having had a role in the rape. And their families and, and, the, and the boys had never had any experience in the system. And so they didn't really know how to react to the techniques of the cops. It didn't mean anything to them when they were Mirandized. Um, it didn't, they didn't know to ask for a lawyer. And when they were told, if you cooperate, you'll get to go home, you know, they, and, and this, these interrogations took place over 14 to 30 hours, you know, they eventually thought, well, you know, I'll say the guy in the other room did it, as he's suggesting, mm-hmm. and he's telling me I'm going to get to go home, and so I will participate and go along with this, and everything will be okay. By the way, there, I think I'm going to make sure I get this right. I believe that Corey Weiss was the oldest at 16. The other four were around 14, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, several of them were, two were 14, two were 15, and Corey was 16. Okay. So, so Corey was the only one who was tried as an adult. He was eventually them. tried. So in a way, the, uh, the uh, this may be the mo- uh, inarticulate way of saying this, but um, the police sort of found the, the, the weakest of the herd here. That's not even a good way to put it. They found vulnerable kids to be able to talk to, and they had, uh, it sounds like, in watching the film, they certainly um, needed to, well, let's go to the actual, so, so they're, they're in, in, they find out, the police find out about a rape. They've got these five kids. The rape is of a white woman who, who a wealthy, well-to-do white woman who was jogging through Central Park that night, who was brutally assaulted and raped. Obviously, the the, uh, the the press, once they found out about it, became... Now, give me... And I want to make sure I've got the chronology correct. The police had already sort of decided, if that's the right word to say, decided that these five kids were going to be fairly easy to turn. Had the, had the media really gotten a hold of, of what exactly transpired with the rape of this woman? Was that sort of... I think that the police, after taking the 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 whole group into custody believe that among those kids were the the um, perpetrators of this atrocity okay and so they really worked backwards from the crime to get the the five out of the group because they didn't actually have compelling evidence i mean these these kids were in some cases sent home and made to bring back the clothes and shoes they were wearing and there was no blood on the clothes or shoes. They were asked for descriptions of the crime scene, and none of them could actually describe where it took place. They were asked to tell the police about the victim, and none of them could describe what she was wearing or what direction she was coming from. And so really all the police had at the end were these confessions. And they taped the confessions. The, they, the five, one, let me start over on that. 
um, the videotape can the the um, the interrogations were not taped. Right. What was taped was video statements that were given to prosecutors. Those statements, though, were the product of 14 to 30 hours of intensive interrogation. Right. So we don't see what goes on over that period. We only see a kind of scripted narrative that the that the five the four of the five actually had worked out with the police, and they're giving those statements um, under the impression that they're going to get home after going to get to go home after cooperating, which was not the case. Right, and the police are coaching them. They are. They're using you know techniques that are time-tested and effective and yeah. you know there's a there's an element of good cop bad cop in it um, right. they're preying on the vulnerable um, as you suggested before these you know these guys didn't know how to withstand 30 hours of without sleep with uh, intense pressure without any food uh, with parents being cycled in and out of the room and not necessarily coming to their aid and in the end serving as agents in their false confections and wrongful convictions because they didn't know they were vulnerable to these tactics that the police employ so well and these were seasoned detectives from the Manhattan uh, Homicide North squad that had done this, uh, you know, many times. And they had a, the, the, the squad you just mentioned had a reputation for closing cases. And all of this is taking place in the backdrop of um, New York City in, a, in a kind of a financial decline. A lot of questions about the viability of New York at the time. There was a lot of high-profile cases involving kind of a racial overtone, very divided city. A lot going on about Berkowitz, Bernard Getz, who was shooting kids, who shot some kids on a, on a subway. Um, I mean, a lot of things were going on at the time that this was happening in New York, right? Yes, the 80s was um, a decade that was full of racially charged incidents, and the tension was, had really um, sort of reached a critical mass by the late 80s. And um, so this is the backdrop for this crime, and I think it contributes to why um, a news media, uh, a news media, and especially the tabloids, which are engaged in a war for the readership of the city and are willing to print the most sensational headlines to get people to buy copies of the paper. It contributes to their willingness to accept a narrative fed to them by the police without a kind of questioning attitude that we, we rely on, on journalists to bring to any story they report. Right. And so in that regard, the media failed the people of New York City by giving them a story that was incorrect, and they also failed the five, of course. But then the public, I think maybe there was some fatigue uh, from hearing about these stories. I mean, homicides were at nearly at an all-time high by 1989. This maybe was thought of as a dangerous and dirty place to live. And so the public was ready to receive this as well. And um, the police were cer certainly looking for a high-profile victory where they could say, see, we are out there protecting you from these marauders. Right. We're speaking with uh, the co-director, producer, and writer for the Central Park Five, David McMahon, along with Ken Burns and Sarah Burns, are the uh, also the other part of the, uh, the the team of people that put this together. And, and I'm sure many, many others <laughs> besides that. But... Uh, you're right to say, and it, so so here you had sort of this media frenzy, and it really, I don't know how how you can overstate the impact that it must have had on it, on uh, taint, excuse me, tainting a jury pool of people in New York who, as you said, were probably receptive to the idea that this was uh, done in sort of a pack mentality. In fact, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think the uh, some of the tabloids coined a phrase called wilding 
um, during this uh, during these uh, the stories about what happened in, in this rape, and and referred to the teenagers as being part of a wolf pack, attacking people. So certainly certainly fed in not only to a vigilante mentality, but let's let's be perfectly honest here. There was a racial component to all of this. Five four black. Let me start over. Five black kids and a Latino. Yeah, four uh, four African Americans and one a Latino. I'm sorry. Five. Yeah. Um, yes, um, I think what you see in the way the story is covered is it's, it's kind of um, there are echoes of what we saw what we saw throughout the 20th century in the way that that blacks are are portrayed by the media, especially when it comes to um, their relationship to crimes of this nature. You see it in the way that they're covered uh, in the early early 20th century during the height of lynching. You see it in this, the case of the Scottsboro Boys. You see it in the case of Emmett Till. It's dehumanizing language that reduces these, uh, these in, in the case of the five, these teenagers, to something subhuman. And it's, it's driven by a kind of prejudice or uh, suspicions that have hampered our country and uh, for for as long as we've been in existence, and yeah. um, w- you know, we see it take shape in the media in the way that it's covered, the way this case is covered. Absolutely, and and let's not leave out. We have a, a couple of uh, prosecutors who are very interested in in getting a conviction, which is their job. But certainly, I guess when I when I watch the film uh, Central Park, the Central Park Five. And now we have the benefit of hindsight, but even at the time, to a seasoned prosecutor and to a seasoned uh, investigative unit, the fact that none of their none of the kids w- were able to uh, agree on some very key points in the, in this crime, none of them they were contradicting contradicting each other across the board on the important points of this case. It's hard not to see this as something more than just uh, sloppy investigative work. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, and in, in your, in, in your, in the, in the process of in, uh, doing this film, have you been able to? And is this an incorrect uh, assumption on my part uh, to say that it's hard to see how they were able, to, with a straight face, to go to a jury and with confidence say that these were the five kids responsible for this crime? Do you, have you been able to reconcile that? Well, you know, we reached out to the police and prosecutors in the hopes that some of them would come forward and give us an interview. Most of them uh, didn't respond to phone calls or to emails. And the few that did said, you know, we'd love to talk to you about it and tell you how right we are, but we can't because we've been named in this civil suit. And so we'll never know for sure okay. um, what it was they were thinking at that time. Um, so all we can do is speculate. And, you know, everything you said is correct. They had this... Um, mountain of of evidence suggesting that the five had no idea uh, what happened uh, down in that ravine to the Central Park jogger. Um, All they had were these confessions, and on the strength of those confessions, they felt they would be able to get convictions. Now, weeks after the, um, the five confessed to the crime, the DNA evidence came back, and it wasn't a match. And I think at that point, they should have gone back and come up with another theory. But instead, what they said was, well, there was a sixth perpetrator who got away. Mm. But the problem with that is that nowhere in any of their confessions are th- is there a mention of the sixth perpetrator. And it just would be impossible to think that there was some kind of conspiracy where they all said, well, we'll protect the sixth guy so he can get away. And so even then, 
they should have said, you know, this theory also won't fly. But they were right in that the confessions were strong enough yes. to convince a jury. And when we were fortunate enough to come in contact with one of the jurors, Ronald Gold, and he watched uh, this trial and, and took notes and listened, and he watched all the tapes like all the others did, and his thought was, well, you know, there are a lot of contradictory details in there. These guys don't seem to have their story straight. And when he got into the deliberation room on the first day, he was surprised to find that the other 11 jurors were basically like, well, they confessed to it. This is an open and shut case. We can go ahead and convict. And none of them had any doubt about their guilt. And so the only reason they were out for so long was because Mr. Gold uh, continued to suggest, you know, the, the, there had to be an inaccuracies. And eventually he folded and, and um, you know, there's an irony in the idea that he got, you know, exhausted and, and, and just wanted to get out of there and go home. And so he came up with an excuse and they moved to convict. And the, the, the same thing happened to these guys in their interrogations, except for, you know, when they decided to, uh, to uh, admit their guilt, they went away to prison for seven to thirteen years. Right, and that the absolutely important point to 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 make, and that is that um, how just how powerful a a a confession, a tape confession, confession, which is what the, they had, um, and really the only thing they had, really truly, no DNA, contradictory statements. Etc. Etc. goes down the line um, uh, that, and even the timeline, as you describe in the film, of when they were supposedly doing these other things, and when the rape took place, and when even um, Miss um, uh, Miley, and I've forgotten her first name. I'm sorry. Trisha Miley. Trisha, thank you. Trisha Miley was, they said at at a certain time, 10:05. In fact, she was probably f- running by that spot at 9:20. So none of this, none of it made sense, and yet they had this taped confession by these beleaguered, uh, bedraggled kids, really, uh, who uh, were um, essentially broken down, and, and they said what they were, and they were told they would get to go home. Uh, if So it's just, it, it's really, so let's, so let's move forward. Now, these kids not only went to prison, uh, all of them were convicted uh, from five, for five to ten years, except for uh, um, Corey, Corey Wise, mm-hmm. who was, con- because he was 16, he was tried in a, as an adult, so he had a, a 10 to 15 year sentence ahead of him. So uh, they all did their time. Which yes, it, um, the, they all served, um, the, the four who were tried as juveniles, uh, or sentenced as juveniles, served nearly seven years, and then Corey, as you said, served 13 years uh, before in 2000. To the actual perpetrator, after encountering Corey at an upstate prison, came forward and confessed to being the lone perpetrator in the crime. Mm-hmm. He uh, then gave the district attorney's office a statement, as well as a DNA sample. It turned out the DNA sample was a match to the one that they had in the old files from the original case. And then the Manhattan DA's office initiated a full-scale investigation of the case. What they found in that investigation is everything that we've been discussing, Jeez. that, the, that the, there was nothing accurate about the confessions. And then they moved to uh, join the Five's motion to vacate the convictions, and um, they were all um, then liberated from being sex offenders and able to go forward with their lives um, with now innocence uh, rather than uh, guilt. Uh, in their past. Had it not been for a chance encounter, um, th- this may not have happened uh, um, at all. We would never we would never really know what had happened, um, but it was because uh, Corey happened to be in this 
particular prison when this guy, where this same serial rapist who had been terrorizing the same east side of New York as where this crime occurred, who had been arrested and convicted by for serial rape, uh, who had been in that area, just in that area as well, just uh, bog- mind-boggling uh, in a way. And in fact, I, even in the film, um, Corey describes this encounter as they'd had a little dust-up earlier. But now they were, according to Corey, hey, everything's cool. It was at that, I think it was at that point that um, this, this rapist said, decided to tell the truth. And is, that, is that an accurate reading of, of the, the events? One of the great tragedies of this story, among many, is that when the police didn't get the right guy in April of 1989, that, that guy, Mateus Reyes, a serial rapist, was able to continue raping and killing women, and they could have had him, uh, as Jim Dwyer says in the film, if they had just done their jobs yeah. and followed up on the evidence and the leads that they did have. Uh, fortunately for the five, the Central Park Five, Corey Wise did encounter Mateus Reyes at Rikers Island shortly after they were both uh, yeah. put in prison. And, it, and why Mateus Reyes didn't confess that he was the one that committed their crime, at that point, nobody knows. But 13 years later, he had a change of heart after encounter, encountering Corey again. Yeah. He didn't tell Corey at that time that he was Mateus Reyes and he, had, he, had, he was the one who had... Uh, raped uh, Trisha Miley, but he did go and report the details of his crime to the uh, authorities and ultimately ended up talking to the district attorney's office. And it's, uh, they all, all five had, had, or four of the five had gotten out of prison for the Central Park jogger rape at that time. But the thing that um, really, after that, that really in some ways kept them in prison was the status as sex offenders. Yeah. So that stigma followed them back into their communities and it made it impossible for them to get work and to um, to sort of go forward um, knowing their innocence uh, with their heads held high. But when Reyes uh, came forward and confessed and, and his confession was found to be um, factual, then um, they could have their convictions vacated, and and that transformed their lives. Yeah. And by the way, there was a detective in the unit that that helped uh, extract uh, these confessions out of the kids that was also a detective on this same Mateus uh, Ray's uh, case as well. So there's even an overlap in the investigations here. Um, We're speaking with uh, David McMahon, um, and we're uh, the one of the co-directors, writers, producers of this fantastic documentary called The Central Park Five. It comes out today, um, uh, 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 November 30th, and uh, you're going to be in town, I understand, uh, uh, David, for a Q&A. At the, the new, it's playing at the Landmark New Art up in Santa Monica. Yes, that- um, I will be joined by Raymond Santana and Kevin Richardson of The Central Park Five for... Q&As after the 5.20 screening and the 8 p.m. screening on f- both uh, tonight and uh, on Saturday night at the New Art. Fantastic. This is great. Well, um, yeah, this is just um, – and we really uh, – you know, we've sort of uh, laid out what has happened uh, to, the, to the Central Park Five. But there's so much more to this film, and it's so much of it in the, in the storytelling – um, that uh, you and um, Sarah and Ken Burns, Sarah Burns and Ken Burns, tell tell the story so well, and we do uh, get uh, a glimpse into their lives uh, before, during, and after this tragic uh, series of events uh, besets these kids, which really uh, fleshes this this film out. Um, let me ask you a quick question here. Um, 
given what you've seen, given what the circumstances were, how likely is this sort of thing on this level, on this scale, likely to happen again? I think, unfortunately, it's very likely on, on a number of levels. I think that um, we are plagued by the same suspicions and prejudices that we were in 1989, and you need look no further than the Trayvon Martin case to see that, or the stop-and-frisk policies of the NYPD. Right. I also think that false confessions are just as likely as they were in 1989. Um, you know, we see them all the time. The people who are unfamiliar with what their rights are um, are, are um, just as likely to forego them. Uh, people who um, are vulnerable to the tactics of seasoned detectives um, are, are likely to, to supply false confessions. And there is a policy change that uh, could be initiated everywhere that would prevent some of these false confessions from happening, and that is if uh, police departments are to tape interrogations from the very beginning not 14 or 15 or 30 hours after they started when the die is already cast, but right from the moment they start asking questions, we would ha have many fewer false confessions. Police officers and interrogators would be protected against stepping out of bounds and using illegal techniques. And, and every police department across the country where this technique is, where this um, change has been made, um, they find that their results always favor the police. And so we're, we're happy to see that New York City has just recently announced that, that they will put in place a system of taping all interrogations. They're not quite there yet, so we have to continue to hold their feet to the fire, but it's an important development. It is, it is. And I, I just, uh, when when you see the film, when the people who are listening to this interview, which will, they'll rush out because I'm going to tell them to, rush out and see uh, the Central Park Five. Thank you. Um, th when you see the, the look on the face of, I believe it's uh, uh, Yusuf Salam, uh, when, he, when he's giving this sort of tortured um, uh, confession on, on and he sort of, he, they finally, sh you see the one they finally show the picture of uh, Trisha uh, Millet, uh, um, uh, is, she, is he, when he looks at her photo? It's is Corey, why? Is it, is it Corey? Mm -hmm. when you, that's right. Thank you. The, the look on his face and this, the, just sort of trying to figure out what he's looking at even at initially. And then the look and then the realization, I'm sure the realization that this is what he just confessed to. It's, it's the look of somebody who just, I, I can't, you can't even describe the, the shock in, in, in his face and, and the sort of twisting he does in order to try and his mind must have just been reeling from it. And to see that this poor kid who's going to spend the next seven, eight years of his life in this hell of a trial and a hell of a, of a, a prison. It's just, it's, it's such a moving part of the film and when, the, when an image it'll stay with me. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see um, in those videotape statements, especially with Corey Wise, yeah. that he's sort of um, trying, you can see in his face that he's trying to please the prosecutor. Yeah. He wants to say something that satisfies her because he believes that he's playing a part in helping the police and prosecutors get their guys. And it's not going to be him, it's going to be someone else. But it, he's clearly taken aback by the photograph that they share with him, which was an image of, of Ms. Miley um, have, having been brutally beaten. Uh, and, you know, but it, it's not just the, the four who are in those, video, those tape video statements that offer something that we can see um, through sort of what's on their faces. Um, it's also the prosecutor, when you see uh, Elizabeth Letterer, you know, uh, in footage going in and out of the courthouse or, or, um, or uh, presiding over these uh, videotape statements, she, or in a press conference after the convictions have been won, 
she looks so pained and troubled, and it's really hard to imagine that she was 100% certain that she was trying the right guys. Yeah. Really, it's it's uh, everyone should see this documentary. It's a it's a it's a window into the past, with uh, what happened in 1989. It's also uh, it's also a uh, a tale of caution that this, as you said, and I agree with you, uh, David McMahon, that this could happen again, and uh, undoubtedly, unfortunately, probably will. Um, but anyway, it's just a great uh, film. The film is the Central Park uh, Five. Uh, the co-director was. Uh, thank you so much for being here, David McMahon, co-director, writer, producer, along with Ken Burns and Sarah Burns. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for being here on Film School. Mike, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 